A quick warning. This episode has some explicit language. Latasha Harlins was nine years old when her mother was shot and killed in a Los Angeles nightclub. It was November 1985, Thanksgiving Day. When her mother got killed, she took it real hard. That's Latasha's cousin, Shanice Harlins Kilgore. She was hurt because then her father left. And that was the last time, I believe, that she seen her father. Latasha and her family hoped her mother's killer would be found guilty of murder and spend her life in prison. Instead, the woman was convicted of voluntary manslaughter and sentenced to five years. The justice system had failed them. The Harlins family was learning that life in L.A. wasn't so different from the one they had fled in East St. Louis. In her book, The Last Plantation, the author Itabari and Jerry described their plight this way. There was death in the family. It plagued theirs like cancer, heart attack, diabetes, or stroke in other families. It was not the consequence of some deadly pathogen or organic breakdown, but seemed a disease unto itself, a natural, violent death. Latasha's grandmother, Ruth Harland, had suffered a lot of these losses. The father of one of her daughters was killed. One brother died in a car accident. Two others were killed in bars. One on the same Thanksgiving day that another of her daughters, Latasha's mother, was fatally shot in L.A. But Ruth Harlins managed to build a decent life in California, working as a clerk for the Department of Social Services. There's something about her I just remember was very gentle and loving and tired. She seemed to be carrying so much weight, generational weight. Ruth Harlins helped raise Latasha and her siblings after their mother's death. She tried to give her family the peace it never had. There were three adults and four children living in the Harlins' home. It was crowded. Ruth Harlins did her best to provide for them on $1,600 a month. Shanice Harlins Kilgore. She used to always put that out there in the, in the atmosphere. Family, family, family. Family is important. Family is all we got at the end of the day. Ruth Harlins hadn't lived in the South since she was a child, but she still considered herself a Southern woman. She made big family meals of ham, collard greens, cabbage, potato salad, and cornbread. The food reminded her of home and helped to bring everyone together. She worked and saved so she could move into a three-bedroom apartment in South Central L.A., a huge upgrade for the family. But even with the extra space, her grandchildren continued to share bedrooms. It was like, wow, we got this big space, but we still couldn't go without sleeping with each other, I guess. I guess we was used to it. So growing up, to me, we had a ball. We just knew we can go outside and play all fucking day and come back home before the streetlights. Come on. Ruth Harlins insisted on routines and chores. Her work ethic and resilience would be her grandchildren's inheritance. So we know to um, make sure that the dishes was washed, the floor was mopped, the kitchen was clean, because the way she raised us was you wake up, you brush your teeth, you wash your face, and you get dressed. You don't lounge all day and not do nothing. No, you get up because nobody don't want to talk to somebody with a funky-ass breath, she would say. Latasha thrived in Ruth Harlan's safe and supportive home. In middle school, she was an honor roll student, 
a track star, and a cheerleader. Every Sunday, she went to church with her grandmother. As she entered her teen years, Latasha was a popular girl who knew all the latest dances, flirted easily with boys, and stood up for the people she loved. Her family encouraged her to pursue her ambitions. The people who knew her best could see her potential. She wanted to be an attorney so bad because I know her mom wanted to be a real estate agent, and that's what she was studying for. So I think she had that same charisma, that same go-get-it attitude like her mom. But her mother's death and the way the justice system had failed the family still cast a shadow. In an essay for her ninth grade history class, Latasha explained why she wanted to become an attorney. The most important thing to me, she wrote, is that my family is always protected by a shield so that they won't be harmed by dangerous, ruthless, uncaring people. She was so, you know, devastated by the sentencing of her mother's killer that she wanted to make sure that this didn't happen again. That's Brenda Stevenson, an author and African-American studies professor at UCLA. She wanted to be able to protect her family from this kind of injustice. She realized that the criminal justice system failed Black families so incredibly. As a high school freshman in 1991, Latasha Harlins had a vision of her future, but the present day was a struggle. Her high school was far from her neighborhood. That meant an hour-long bus ride each way, sometimes more. Her grades slipped, she cut class, and when she did go to school, she got in trouble. The dean of students called her a teacher's nightmare. Latasha told her grandmother she'd try harder and improve her grades. She vowed to graduate with a perfect GPA and to go to college. But her family still worried about her. How do you think the world saw Tasha? Another, like, another black girl. Yeah. Just another black girl, not not knowing where she came from or who she is. So, of course, it's a lot of stereotype going on. So she was just a regular, normal black girl, just like me, you know, that's struggling. Despite her struggles, those close to Latasha say she was always the same person. One of my friend girls named Wanda, and I didn't know she knew my cousin. Then she told me the story that she was like, Tasha used to walk me home every day and she used to comb my hair. And I'm like, at 14, she combed somebody else's hair besides mine's. And at 14, she had literally other 14-year-olds looking at her and she would walk them or comb their hair or protect them in any kind of way. And you'd be like, wow. Tasha was my defender. Like, she would come and defend me all the time because I was small and I was get bullied a lot and she hated me getting bullied. She hate bully, period. The Empire Liquor Market was a five-minute walk from the Harlan's family's apartment. Despite the name, it was more of a convenience store than a liquor store. It was run by a family of Korean immigrants. They hadn't been in the neighborhood for long, but already had a reputation for being hostile to their Black customers. Shanice would only go there if her grandmother asked her to. They were some rude assholes, and I gotta admit it, you know. The couple times that I did go in there, I just refused to go in there again because you're not finna stereotype me and take my money. But Latasha would still go to the Empire Liquor Market. On the morning of March 16th, 1991, she went for the last time. This is Slow Burn, 
I'm your host, Joel Anderson. In March 1991, two acts of violence rocked Los Angeles. Both were caught on videotape. Both revealed the fault lines of race, of money, and of power among the city's nine million people. And both would make clear to the city's black residents just how little their lives matter to the justice system. One was the beating of Rodney King. The other was what happened to Latasha Harlins at the Empire Liquor Market. The case that won't go away grew from an argument in an obscure market in South Los Angeles. This was such a stunning miscarriage of justice. It's a racial, political, legal mess. There are some beginning efforts at peacemaking, but there is an anger that wants redress and might not wait much longer. This is episode two, No Justice. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. The owner of the Empire Liquor Market was named Billy Du. He and his wife, Soon Ja Du, had immigrated to the U.S. from South Korea. Before coming to the States, the Du's had been living well by the standards of post-war Korea. But they wanted something more for their three children. So, like a lot of middle-class Koreans in the 1970s, they headed to Los Angeles, part of a wave of immigration that would make L.A. home to the largest Korean population in America. For the Dews, life in California was a struggle. They could only afford a small apartment, and Billy's limited English meant he couldn't find the sort of management work he'd done back home. Eventually, he got a job as a repairman at a radio shack. But the money Billy earned wasn't enough for the family to live on. So Soon Ja went to work too. 
she assembled couches and crocheted clothes in a garment factory. The goal was to go into business on their own. Following the example of other Korean immigrants, they gravitated to corner grocery stores, a business that you could start with a little money and operate without speaking much English. Here's Elaine Kim, a founding member of the Asian American Studies Program at the University of California, Berkeley. A lot of people felt they had no way of advancing themselves in the white society except by doing business for themselves. That would be the only way that their own work would result in some benefit to themselves and not to somebody else. In 1980s Los Angeles, there were plenty of properties available for relatively cheap. That was especially true in inner-city neighborhoods, which had largely been abandoned by Jewish shopkeepers after the racial unrest of the late 1960s. In 1981, Billy bought a grocery store in San Fernando, a middle-class area that was rapidly losing its white population. The Dews were small business owners now. They'd gained some control of their economic destiny. But it wasn't an easy life. Soonja worked in the store, dutifully but begrudgingly, almost every day. She developed chronic migraines. Still, Billy pressed forward. In 1987, he sold the first store and bought another in the nearby suburb of Santa Clarita. Their son Joseph worked in the market. Another son was a supervisor at Korean Airlines, and their daughter was studying to become a nurse. Billy and Soonja moved into a four-bedroom home in the San Fernando Valley. Soonja filled the house with black lacquer and mother-of-pearl furniture from Korea. Things were looking up. In March 1989, Billy Dew decided to expand his business. He bought the Empire Liquor Market in South Central Los Angeles. It cost $380,000. That's about $840,000 today. It was the first time the Dews had operated a store in a largely black neighborhood. Each day, they commute to the inner city from the suburbs. Here's Elaine Kim again. You do have a potentially explosive situation where this foreigner seems to have come into the community and is able to buy the place, whether anybody else wanted it or not. And that's for lots of reasons, but people don't, don't want to be taken advantage of. Black Americans still face discrimination when they tried to buy property or borrow money to start a business. The fact that recent Asian immigrants were able to invest in Black neighborhoods when they couldn't, that was incredibly frustrating. Why don't you open a market that we can use for our family? Go back to Korea. We're the one making you Why don't you hire Blacks? Why don't you hire Blacks? The violence of these neighborhoods only inflamed the tensions. In the 1980s, the gang-related killings of Los Angeles reached record highs and became the subject of national panic. Over the course of a month in 1986, Four Korean merchants in South Central L.A. were murdered during robberies. The sister of one of the victims suggested racial resentment was a factor. People don't care, she told the L.A. Times. They think we got money from God or something. Some Korean and Black leaders tried to downplay the racial element of the attacks. They said the murders reflected Koreans' growing presence in the city's worst area for crime. They pointed out that when Black people were killed in South Central, it didn't draw nearly as much attention or media coverage. But something still had to be done. The goal was to develop a model 
for facilitating dialogue and improve relations between two communities. That's Edward Chang, a professor at UC Riverside and member of Los Angeles's Black Korean Alliance, commonly known as the BKA. Well, in the beginning, the premise here is that, you know, the reason why we are having this conflict is because we don't understand each other. However, the membership was small, about 20 at the most 30, and the membership was unstable and fluctuated, and it was difficult to forge common agenda. Other local activists weren't interested in building bridges. Did you think that the BKA like served any real purpose, or did you think it was useful in any way? I did not. That's Danny Bakewell. He was one of LA's most prominent Black activists and businessmen. People urged him to join the Black Korean Alliance, but he declined. It was, it was a, in my judgment, it was a hollow attempt to do something that really wasn't beneficial for Black people because it asked us to go into an alliance with Koreans, but the alliance was all based on helping them to do business better in the black community. What about an alliance that helps us to open up businesses in the Korean community? But never a conversation. And that's always the problem that we have. It seemed the tension in South Central wasn't going to get better anytime soon. I I knew it was a ticking time bomb. I just getting worse and worse. By the time Billy Doo bought the new store in South Central, Soon Ja Doo wanted out. She begged her husband to buy a house close to the beach, where she said they could spend quiet days fishing. Billy brushed off his wife's concerns. He believed the store was a good investment. Their son Joseph felt the same. This was Los Angeles, Joseph Doo said. How bad could it be? When the Du family opened their store in South Central, they struggled to adjust to their new customers. Here's Edward Chang. You know, when customer, African-American customers walks into the store, you know, you're supposed to make eye contact and greet, uh, hello, how are you, what can I do for you? However, in Korea, they don't do that. They, they do not make eye contact. If you do make eye contact, it, it is shown a sign of disrespect or trying to make a trouble. And, of course, many African-American customers took it offensively, right? One thing most Korean immigrants did pick up on was the racial hierarchy of their new homeland. A study at the time found that most Korean shopkeepers in L.A. felt Black people were inferior to them and weren't worthy of courtesy or respect. Here's Elaine Kim. So they were kind of aspiring towards upward mobility. And many of them, they wanted to move as far away from Black people as possible. So success would mean, well, if I want to get ahead, obviously I have to live in a community close to white people or with white people. With two stores, one in Santa Clarita and the Empire Liquor Market in South Central, the Du family was spread thin. Instead of living her dream of a peaceful life in a beach house, Soonja was stuck working behind a counter. Making things worse, Billy Doo's investment wasn't paying off. 
The Empire liquor market didn't make as much money as expected. The family bounced checks, and some distributors stopped making deliveries to the store. But most damaging was the family's beef with the Main Street Crips. Here's Brenda Stevenson, the UCLA professor and author. There were gangs that were operative um, in the neighborhood. It was doing the crack epidemic, and it had serious impact on that community. In early 1991, three suspected gang members assaulted Joseph Dew and robbed the store. The Dews called the police, and the men were arrested. That only escalated the conflict. The Crips returned to the store and threatened to kill the family. The Dews shut down the market for two weeks, hoping to calm things down. Billy Dew even tried to broker a truce with the Crips. It didn't work. Unfortunately, her son and her husband had been victimized to a certain extent by some people who had come into the shop. And so that just fed into the mythology of Black criminality that they arrived with. Billy Dew's wife and son begged him to close the store, but he couldn't find someone to buy the market at the price he wanted. So they stayed in South Central, in a neighborhood they feared, with neighbors they didn't trust. Let's go through what happened on March 16th, 1991. What happened that day? Well, Latasha um, goes to into the Empire Liquor Market at about 9.31 a.m. When Latasha walked into the store, Soon Jadu was working the counter. Her husband, Billy, was sleeping outside in the family's van. A surveillance camera inside the store recorded what happened next. She comes into the shop, she walks to the back of the shop, and she gets a bottle of orange juice, which is about $1.79. I believe that was the price of it. She places it in her backpack. She has a backpack on, it's sticking out the top, you know, and then she works her way back to the counter. In the video, Latasha is wearing a UCLA cap and sneakers. Soon Jadu's son had warned her that people who wore clothes like Latasha's were gang members. Two witnesses later testified that Soon Jadu confronted Latasha. When she gets up to the counter, she is immediately accused by Mrs. Du, who is the wife of the shopkeeper, as stealing. And Latasha tells her right away, I'm not stealing. You know, she has the money, which is $2, in her hand. Soon Jadu wasn't satisfied. In the video, you can see her lean over the counter and grab the left sleeve of Latasha's sweater. Latasha slaps away Dew's hand. Dew holds onto the sleeve and tries to pull Latasha closer. At this point, you see two younger children move toward the door. The conflict is escalating. Latasha swings her backpack at Dew's head and follows up with two hard punches to her face. Dew falls behind the counter, then gets back up. She chucks a stool at Latasha. The stool misses. Then, Dew reaches behind the counter and pulls out a gun. She points it at Latasha, clutching it with both hands. Latasha sees the gun, and this is what's very interesting about the video, as you see her see the gun. And, um, and she, you know, continues what she's doing, which is to put the orange juice down, and she turns around to walk out. As Latasha begins to walk away, Soon Jadu pulls the trigger. Just like that, Latasha collapses out of sight of the camera. Latasha LaVon Harlins died right there, 
on the floor of the Empire Liquor Market. She was 15 years old. A police officer showed up at Ruth Harlins's apartment later that afternoon. Latasha's cousin, Shanice, was in the living room. Latasha and I, we were headed out that afternoon. I think we was going to the movies. So they came and knocked, showed a picture, and uh, my grandmother verified it was Latasha. And uh, all hell broke loose. I remember running out the house, and I remember falling down in our driveway, just crying, like, they killed her. Fuck, they killed her. Like, fuck, they killed her. Let's take a break. The video of the Rodney King beating had been broadcast 12 days before the March 16th killing of Latasha Harlins. The footage was still dominating the national and local news. On March 17th, the LA Times' Metro section featured a long profile of King. The lead photo in the Metro section showed protesters gathering outside of LAPD headquarters, demanding the resignation of Police Chief Daryl Gates. The ABC, CBS, and NBC Evening News all ran series on police brutality in the LAPD. But there were no stories anywhere about Latasha Harlins. The cops and prosecutors had seen the video of Latasha's killing, but the public hadn't. Unlike in the Rodney King case, no one brought a copy to a TV station. After a brief investigation at the store, police arrested Soon Jatu. Three days later, prosecutors charged Du with murder. On March 19, 1991, in the LA Times' first story about Latasha's death, an LAPD officer said the case was just a business dispute and was not racially motivated. Nonetheless, responses to the killing broke down along racial and ethnic lines. Some Koreans saw Soon Ja-do as a frightened shopkeeper in a crime-ridden neighborhood, defending herself against a violent threat. Here's Elaine Kim. Honestly speaking, my initial impression was similar to the other Korean people who thought, poor Sunja Du, this girl is dead, but poor Sunja Du was probably terrified. What were the circumstances of poor Sunja Du inadvertently shooting someone because she was slugged and she was terrified? Black people in communities like South Central saw something different. A teenager, shot in the head by an adult with a racist grievance. In those neighborhoods, Latasha's death tapped into years of anger and resentment. More than 200 of Latasha's classmates signed a letter to the LA Times. Was Latasha shot and killed because of racial intolerance, they asked? When will this stop? We needed to make our voices heard. We needed, we needed those voices to be loud, and we needed to, you know, get the community riled up about it. And we did. Danny Bakewell is the activist who was skeptical of the Black Korean Alliance. In the days after Latasha Harlins' killing, he organized a demonstration in front of the Empire Liquor Market. About 150 people showed up. They posted a sign across the front of the store reading, Closed for murder and disrespect of Black people. Stop killing our children! We want justice! Stop 
Bakewell helped organize boycotts of other Korean merchants that were accused of discriminating against black customers. This was the kind of moment the Black Korean Alliance had been set up to address. The group promoted dialogue, not boycotts. But now the divisions were much harder to contain. Edward Chang. We still try to forge coalition and sustain it, but without any support, human and financial support, and uh, the media just overwhelmed us. You know, the media wasn't interested in mitigation. Media was interested in covering conflict, tension, boycotts, violence. In June, another Korean store owner shot and killed a black customer he suspected of trying to rob his store. No charges were filed. In August, three Korean-owned stores in South Central were firebombed. L.A. Mayor Tom Bradley held a press conference in front of a burned-out storefront. He surrounded himself with Korean-American business owners, Black clergy, and members of the Black Korean Alliance. He urged everyone to talk out their differences. But Bakewell was done with talking. He kept up the boycotts for another month. This is not a game. This is our lives. This is our community. This is our children. And you have to be more responsive and respectful, or you, we are going to have a problem with each other. Soon Jadu's murder trial was originally scheduled to take place in Compton, near the Empire Liquor Market. But in August 1991, a judge ordered a change of venue. The proceeding was moved to downtown Los Angeles. The judge's reasoning? That some witnesses and court staff, including a Korean interpreter, might feel intimidated driving in and out of Compton every day. The trial of Soon Jadu began in September. At the center of the prosecution's case was the surveillance videotape from the liquor store, the first time that footage had been aired in public. In her opening statement, prosecutor Roxanne Carvajal let the jury know what they were about to see. I do have to warn you that you should brace yourself because you will see Latasha being killed and she will die in front of your eyes. Carvajal hoped to show the jury that Du had been the aggressor. Du had grabbed Latasha's sleeve. Du had thrown the stool. Du had pulled out the gun. And when Latasha tried to leave the store, Du shot her. Earlier, you heard Elaine Kim say that, like some Koreans, she had sympathized with Soon Ja Du when she first heard about the killing. That changed when she saw the video. It looked like she was executing her. That's what it looked like to me. Just to see some woman pick up a gun and shoot the girl in the back of the head as she was leaving is so shocking. And so, yes, it, it, it made a huge difference to see, to actually see that happen. I, I can't believe that, they, that people would still think that Latasha Harlins was at fault in any way. Du's lawyers argued that she'd acted in self-defense. On the witness stand, Du testified that she thought Latasha might kill her, either with her punches or with a gun that she might be carrying in her backpack. Latasha didn't have a gun. But remember, Du claimed that she believed Latasha was a gang member. Under cross-examination, Du said she'd been beaten senseless, almost to oblivion, and that even with a gun in her hand, she thought she was going to die. But Du's version of events didn't line up with the tape. She wasn't beaten senseless, and she had no reason to fear a teenage girl who had turned around and was walking away from her. Here's Brenda Stevenson. 
it really goes to this notion of how black people are, are perceived within our society. We are perceived as being criminal, as being aggressive, you know, people who are violent. And just to be clear, Asian American women are not perceived in that way. At the moment in which we were, this case took place, Mrs. Du was thought of as more feminine. She was thought of as more respectable because of her racial status and her generation. Latasha was thought of as being, you know, a rash teenager, as being someone who was brought up in a violent atmosphere. As the defense attorneys say, she hit like a boy. So that's what the jury had to consider. The security videotape versus the defense's caricature of a teenage black girl. They could find Soon Jadu not guilty on self-defense grounds. They could find her guilty of second-degree murder. Or they could convict her of a lesser charge, voluntary manslaughter, defined as the unlawful killing of a human being, without malice, upon a sudden quarrel. They deliberated for three days. Ms. Shepard, would you please give the bailiff the um, verdict form? The court please read the verdict. We, the jury, in the time of action, find the defendant, Sing Jadu, guilty of voluntary manslaughter. Voluntary manslaughter was the same verdict that came down in the killing of Latasha's mother. The verdict that made the family feel they hadn't gotten justice. The verdict that made Latasha want to be a lawyer, to protect her family. That was the verdict for Soon Jadu. But Du didn't feel that she'd gotten off easy. She was facing up to 16 years in state prison. When the verdict was read in court, she lowered her head and wept. Soon Jadu's fate was now in the hands of Judge Joyce Carlin. Carlin had been appointed to the bench by Republican Governor Pete Wilson just two months earlier. This was the first case she'd presided over that had gone to trial. The punishment she handed down would have huge consequences for the Harlins and Duke families and for the city of Los Angeles. We'll be right back. When Soon Jadu was interviewed by a probation officer before her sentencing, she admitted that she was frightened by Black people and didn't understand them. She also said that if she was in the same situation again, she wouldn't do anything differently. The probation officer recommended the maximum 16-year sentence. Judge Carlin rejected that recommendation. Was it murder? A jury convicted due of voluntary manslaughter. But Judge Joyce Carlin, on the bench just since July, imposed probation a $500 fine. No jail time. After announcing that due would serve no jail time, Judge Carlin read a statement. She said... Latasha's death should be remembered as a catalyst to force Blacks and Koreans to confront an intolerable situation and create solutions. This is not a time for rhetoric. It is not a time for revenge. It should be a time of healing. Carlin said Du had acted out of fear and that she wasn't a threat to the community. Carlin also said that Du likely hadn't shown remorse because of cultural and language barriers. After Carlin read her statement, Soon Jadu cried out, Thank you, God, in Korean. By then, the Harlins family had already left the courtroom. Once again, the justice system had failed them. Here's Ruth Harlins, 
Latasha's grandmother. I think it was an, it was an injustice. Uh, justice has not been served. This lady has killed my 15-year-old granddaughter and should get away with five years probation. This is an injustice. No, justice has not been served. Shanice Harlan's Kilgore. If it was the other way around, if Latasha would have killed Soon Jadu, she'd probably be in prison to this day today. You know, because she a typical black girl in the ghetto with a bad reputation, reputation on her name. So we live in a fucked up world, I guess. The justice system is not for us. Soon Jadu's light sentence turned what had mostly been a local story into a national scandal. Supporters of the Harlan's family focused their outrage on Judge Carlin. Black anger boiled over. I'm declaring today the black community is at war with Judge Karens. Am I right? Are you with me? Even the district attorney stoked the flames by condemning and blacklisting the judge. This was such a stunning miscarriage of justice that Judge Carlin cannot continue to hear criminal cases with any public credibility whatsoever. Black leaders led pickets at Carlin's courtroom and home. Some Koreans and Korean-Americans also criticized the sentence. They worried that the judge's ruling might come back to hurt them in their community. Edward Chang. She handed out the very light sentencing. didn't help at all. I mean, just probation for, you know, taking away a person's life is just unacceptable. The English-language newspaper, the Korea Times, pointed out that Soon Jadu's sentence was less severe than the 30 days in jail a Korean man received for kicking and stomping a dog. Some justice, the paper wrote. The LA Times looked at sentences given to people convicted of violent crimes in Los Angeles in the previous year. Of 247 defendants, only two got straight probation with no jail time. Both of those were assault cases, not killings. In an interview almost three years later, Joyce Carlin lashed out at the media. The media is supporting the notion that racism is behind every decision that is made, that racism is behind, is is the skeleton in everybody's closet. I have never been so aware, forced to be so aware of racial issues. Nobody thinks in terms of just human beings anymore. No, no statement is made without in, injecting some politically correct thought. I think that the, I think we have to stop focusing on racism so much. I really do. You have to stop seeing it behind every door. Carlin said that she remained comfortable with how she handled the case. You don't make a decision because it's going to make you look good or bad. You don't make a decision because you're afraid of being called a wimp or too aggressive. You make decisions for the right reasons and not personal consequences. That's my belief. That's certainly my belief as a judge. And if there comes a time when I can't make decisions without thinking about personal consequences, then it's time for me to leave the bench. Soon Jadu's sentence confirmed something the Harlan's family and many Black Americans already knew. The justice system seemed to go into overdrive when meeting out punishment to Black people. But when a Black person or family came to court as a victim, nothing worked as it should. 
Brenda Stevenson again. This was really, really a devastating judgment as far as Black people were concerned. If it's not the police, then it's, and it's not the jury, then it's the judge. Black Angelinos would not forget the pain of Latasha Harlins' killing. When the riots began, six months after Judge Carlin issued our verdict, demonstrators would write Latasha's name on protest signs, and 2,300 Korean-owned stores would be looted and burned. But the Empire Liquor Market, it stayed standing. The building would be set on fire four separate times, but neighbors always put out the flames. They wanted to preserve the store as a memorial to Latasha, and they didn't want the Du family to get any insurance money. In the years following the trial, Latasha's aunt, Denise Harlins, started an effort to recall Judge Carlin. She hoped to conjure the justice her family never found in court. Denise Harlins spent years lobbying public officials, staging protests, and crashing events where Carlin was appearing. Denise, who died in 2018, is Shanice Harlins Kilgore's mother. My mama didn't work at all. Um, this was her job, a non-paid job. So this was her life to make sure Judge Carlin wouldn't sleep comfortable knowing she let a murderer off. Joyce Carlin didn't get recalled. She retired as a judge in 1997. She said she wanted to spend more time with her family. Latasha Harlins' family struggled to cope with her death. When Latasha was killed, her cousin Shanice was still a teenager herself. Hell, I just lost my fucking best friend and the person I talk shit to the most. You know what I'm saying? The one that combed my hair, I just lost her. And you just be like, what? Life just stopped right then and there. I don't care how old you are. It was very painful to go home and to sit and just still have her clothes there. Still have her smell there. Billy and Sunja do didn't respond to our interview request. The author Itabari and Jerry spoke with Ruth Harlins in the year following Dew's sentencing. I can remember this painful kind of squeaking voice from Ruth Harlins saying, talking about Mrs. Dew, she has her grandchildren. Why don't I have my grandchild? Where is my grandchild? Los Angeles never delivered on its promise of a peaceful life for the Harlins family. But what Ruth Harlins couldn't give them in safety she gave in love. She still lives in L.A., not too far from the home where she once lived with her children and grandchildren. She is now 79 years old, having outlived two of her daughters and a granddaughter. Today, the pain of Ruth Harlins' many losses still lingers. My grandmother, the way she takes death is super crazy because when her daughter passed away, my auntie passed away, my grandmother didn't keep no pictures up. None. She she took every picture down of my auntie that she possibly can have, and she hid it. She put them away. So when Latasha passed on, she did the same thing. How long did it take her to take those pictures down? I don't honestly know, but if you was to walk in her house in the 90s, you wouldn't see a picture of Latasha or her mother. But now, 30 years later, she's able to put a picture up of Latasha and her mother. She accepts it, the, the death. 
She's dealing with the pain somehow, some way. Next week on Slow Burn, an outraged city meets an immovable force. LAPD was the most powerful political force in the city. I'm basically a fairly mild-mannered person, but I, I reached my limit. The chief had stepped over the threshold that I could tolerate. Slow Burn is a production of Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You can sign up for Slate Plus to hear a bonus episode of the show this week and every week for the next two months. And in this week's bonus episode, you'll be hearing more from Itabari Najeri, who wrote a book about the Harlan's family called The Last Plantation, and from Edward Chang, who was a member of the Black Korean Alliance. Head over to slate.com slash slowburn to sign up and listen now. It's only a dollar for your first month. We couldn't make Slowburn without the support of Slate Plus, so please sign up if you can. Head over to slate.com slash slowburn. Slow Burn is produced by Jason DeLeon, Ethan Brooks, Sophie Summergrad, Jasmine Ellis, and me, Joel Anderson. Editorial direction by Josh Levine and Gabriel Roth. Artwork by Jim Cook. Theme music by Don Will. Mixing by Merritt Jacob. Brenda Stevenson's book was a great resource for us. It's called The Contested Murder of Latasha Harland. Special thanks to the Department of Special Research Collections at the UC Santa Barbara Library, Lou Cannon, Jackson Vanderbecken, Devin Schwartz, Stan Mizrahi, Laurel Berlanti, Jared Holt, Lowen Liu, Derek John, Derek Johnson, Evan Chung, Davis Land, Janae Desmond Harris, Amber Smith, Bill Carey, Rachel Strom, Seth Brown, Meredith Moran, Chow Tu, Asha Saluja, and Katie Rayford. Thanks for listening. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. And it would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. 
Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.